0: Yes, yes. Welcome into another edition of the Tim McKernan Show here on the Inside STL Podcast Network from the homelonexpert.com studios. I am your host, Timothy Michael McKernan, alongside the great gangster Pete. And uh, this is the edition every week in which we uh, take the questions sent in via email at at insidestl.com or on the TMA fan page on Facebook. And uh, just kind of wander. I kind of like it. I think of, my th- of the three episodes, they're all different but I think this is the one I at least find the most relaxing uh, because it's just like, it's uh, just mind expanding. At least it is for me, for you, it might be uh, mind reducing, but for me, it's mind expanding. And it's all uh, via your questions. Every question is, is welcome. Uh, now I might not be able to answer it, but I welcome you to ask it. T. McKernan at InsideSTL.com. And I like the feedback I get on the, at the episode sometimes leads to some good uh, thought processes and exchanges via email. So always feel free to respond to the interviews this week, Bill a wit. Um, that one's certainly getting attention. I would recommend listening to that next week. Uh, Chris Kerber, new blues broadcaster, Joey Vitale. Uh, and then every, uh, Thursday and Friday pick six with me, G unit and producer Joe. And a, a huge weekend for all, all three of us last weekend as we go two and four a piece. So that's really exciting that uh, you can you can hear guys pick games at, at a rate of 33% success. So that's something to look forward to as well. Ryan Kelly makes it possible. He's the homelonexpert.com. He is the sponsor of our studios. And here we are in year 2 of the podcast and Ryan's been with us since we started everything out with the Gary Pinkle interview low so many months ago. He's online at the homeloanexpert.com. if you're buying a home If you're refinancing a home, there's nobody better do business with than Ryan Kelly. He'll save you money. He's first class. His name is Ryan Kelly, and he's online at thehomeloanexpert.com. Can't thank him enough for being on board, and I can't thank you enough for making sure that if you're going to buy a home or refinance, that you do business with Ryan Kelly online at thehomeloanexpert.com. That is his name. All right, two that I'm planning on going into today. One is really long. And then the other one is sports-related. Gangster Pete, I'll make it a Sadie Hawkins, even though you're not on a microphone. One is philosophical. One is Missouri football slash Barry Odom oriented. Which one would you like to start with? So you're planning the lineup. Start with your first question. Which one you want to go with? You're going philosophical out of the gate. Tim, I've got a question for questions from the audience. Um, if my recollection is correct... You were raised Catholic, but have fallen away from the faith. Can you delve into the factors that played into your loss of faith? Do you still believe in God or a God, but just don't believe in the Catholic Church? Do you foresee a scenario where your faith would become a bigger part of your life? Thanks, I'll hang up and listen, and that comes from Micah. I like this question because there's so many different angles to it. And I would imagine it's going to resonate with a large number of you, whether you're atheist, agnostic, uh, born a certain religion, or still um, practicing that religion you were born into, or uh, found a new faith and now practice that. I feel like it, it, can, it can hit with everybody, whereas opposed to if I, I broke down like the cardinal bullpen, some people go, okay, that's enough. So we, we, questions from the audience, we, we, we like to try and get into to whatever the people want to talk about. So I like this. So with regard to me and religion, so many thoughts, and I hope I can remember them all. Um, first off, my view on whether or not, I'll take the last one first, as Tony LaRusse used to say, do I foresee a scenario where my faith would become a bigger part of my life? Well, it's currently a zero, so therefore uh, it 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 can only go up. But as far as how I could see it happening. I recall having S.E. Cup on the show. She's been on the show, not this show, the radio show, a couple of times. And S.E. Cup, as a conservative commentator, is in the rare uh, percentage of those who would describe themselves as conservatives in the United States in 2018, and it's certainly not unheard of, but it just would be in the minority, um, of someone who is Uh, self-described, I don't know if she calls herself an atheist or agnostic, but there is a difference. Uh, Based on the way she talks, I certainly would say she's agnostic. And she's very conscious of the perception surrounding it uh, of being agnostic. And I also would say that in our conversations about this, and we really kind of got it, I need to have her back on the show. Uh, Gangster Pete, if you want to try and see if she'll come on the radio show or the podcast. I always kind of hoped we would would do that like at her office. And I think she's in New York City uh, because I think it could be a really good one. And I always feel like you get better stuff when it's in person. But uh, I digress. Um, She's been on the phone twice for TMA and has been great. So I get the sense from her that perhaps part of the reason why she is hopeful of regaining her faith or finding faith is because she is in this unique spot of being a conservative commentator in 2018 U.S. politics, in which oftentimes I think everybody listening to this would agree, but maybe not. And if not, that's fine. We can agree to disagree. I'd like to think that that's kind of one of the themes of this thing without somebody sending in an email wanting to fucking kill me because we have a difference of opinion that she's speaking to uh for the most part when you're talking about a conservative audience in 2018 United States politics that the majority is made up of people who are religious and god bless fine by me uh so i think that that i think that that in part is what it is whereas if she were a uh a liberal commentator, and you have less people who are religious, that's not to say all liberals, just less, and the data would back that up, uh, that you wouldn't necessarily have to have all of these, um, statements, you know, with disclaimers in advance of a statement d- regarding religion. I think that's what it's about. I also think, and perhaps even, perhaps even more so that I think it's about the the fact that she wants to have religion come back into her life. That it's a, that's a better way to live, better way to live in this sense that you feel like there is something after death. Um, and so I think that's something a lot of us would enjoy. Uh, and I also realize as I say this, that many of you listening to it can't imagine living without religion or can't imagine living without believing that there is a God. Uh, And I completely, 100% respect that. My thought process when discussing religion, which I recognize as a hypersensitive topic, but I don't want to treat it with hypersensitivity, is that I welcome people to view whatever they want to view about that which we don't know. The tough spot is sometimes when you are discussing religion, one part of the conversation will, one participant in the conversation will speak as if he or she does have knowledge. And I i have a, I have a difficult time navigating that or that they speak in some capacity with certainty. So that gets me to uh, one of the reasons why I have I was a fan of his before I've gotten to know him. I'm lucky enough to be having lunch with him actually next week, and that's uh, Senator Jack Danforth, the oddest pairing in all of St. Louis. Uh, and the reason why I became a fan of his is because of his book, Faith in Politics, which came out of nowhere and it was ahead of its time. And I would recommend I would recommend reading it all day long. It came out in 2006, and and his observation was, and this is a guy who, by the way, is a, an Episcopalian priest. So it's not like he's coming from the, the position that I'm coming from or as, he, as he cups coming from, you know, he's an Episcopalian priest, is that his party, when he showed up in, in Washington, D.C. for his first term, which I believe was 77, I think, it may have been 75, either way, it's coming off of Watergate. There aren't a lot of Republicans relative to, uh, you know, uh, the Democrats. They were certainly outnumbered. And he believes his party sold its soul to the religious right. And again, this is a religious man. And he said one of the issues he has as a religious man is that, and also a senator, and somebody who, as if you did listen to his interview with me in October of 2017, was the pick to be vice president with George W. Bush. And then George W. Bush asked Dick Cheney, but Dick Cheney was in charge of the search committee on uh, the vice presidential uh, running mate in 2000. Uh, So this is a man who, you know, is esteemed, even if you don't like him uh, at the very least uh, for his time as a, as a Senator uh, from Missouri that he says that if one party designates itself as the party of God, then therefore it's coming from the position of it has to be right because God is on our side. So what does that say about the other party? What is that party? Well, that is not the party of God. And then therefore that party is not right because God is right. That premise to me absolutely stands to reason. And his issue with politics now, which he will say, I'm sure when we have lunch next week, And what he has said, and other times we've gotten together, whether they be for interviews or just conversations, we're just kind of BSing, is that the reason why people look at politics as being broken now or so dysfunctional is because compromise is absolutely untenable and it can cost you your job. And so he understands why it's difficult to compromise if one party believes that they are the party of God. Well, then how can you compromise if you are on the side of absolute right? And I'm not talking about right versus left. I'm talking right versus wrong. And again, I'll say it for the 50th time, he's an Episcopalian priest. So I think for me, as far as where I got away from religion, there were two moments. One that actually is a moment and the other that I think was actually a buildup of moments. And this is my own personal thing. And, and, and I'm not looking to get anybody on, quote-unquote, my side or my line of thinking. Um, I'm not even going to probably even break down my line of thinking, per se. I'm just going to answer the question. Um, and then I'm not looking for you to then recommend your church to me. Uh, and I, and I'm, I'm not saying that to be crass. I'm just, please don't. I'm not, because I'm just telling you, I'm not interested. Just like I'm not asking you to go to, like, you know, the penthouse club with me, you know, we've got our things, God bless. So I started at St. Louis U High as a freshman and you're in theology class. And and I don't know why I was thinking this, but I just remember thinking, I can't imagine anybody not believing in God. And I was four, I was actually 13 years old when I started high school. I was probably 14 when I was having this thought. And then by my senior year of Jesuit education at a Catholic institution, I recall thinking, and I don't even know why, I can't imagine how anybody can believe in God. So over those four years of, of teaching critical thought, that's where I wound up. Now that's not, I, here's one of the things that I think, I think people who are not religious, and also I think oftentimes people who are very well educated, make a mistake in the way in which they conduct themselves. Uh, and that is they like, look down on, uh, those who don't share their views in a condescending manner. Uh, and so, uh, because I have that view of, I can't imagine how somebody would believe in God. Uh, that doesn't mean that I'm saying, wow, if you believe in God, you are dumb or something like that. Cause sometimes I'll watch, you know, I, I was saying this on the fan page. I think I was saying in the fan, maybe I was saying it on the radio. I have no idea where I said it. Maybe I said it here. Who knows? I'm all over the place. And like Bill Maher, for example, who I know if you're conservative, I just like, I just triggered you and it wasn't my intent, but, but I'm using him as an example, probably an example you're going to agree with, who would be an extreme example. But even Brooke Baldwin now, who might be more well known to those of you listening for the clay, Travis boobs thing than anything else, but she's the midday anchor on CNN, midday, late afternoon anchor on CNN, Eastern time. There's like this tinge or blatant expression of condescension in their delivery. And, and it, and it, you know, it, it it might, it might work when you're preaching to the choir, but if the goal is to bring more people to your line of thinking I don't think you accomplish that by calling the people on the other side of the aisle stupid. I I, I can tell you this, it wouldn't work for me. And I don't know why that's done. And I was watching real time with Bill Maher this past Friday, and I can't recall who the guest was. But I believe uh, it was a lady who said something along the lines of, you know, you want people to, to, to get on board and vote Democrat in the midterms, but you're essentially calling the people who aren't stupid or calling the people who voted for Donald Trump racist. And that's, you know, I got to tell you something. I recognize that Donald Trump's candidacy and campaign tapped into a portion of the country that is not on board with minorities, with gays, and would, would love to see the country go back to like, I guess, the 1950s, but I also know of a large number of people who I am incredibly confident don't have a bigoted bone in their body who voted for him, whether it's because they liked his policy ideas or because they just didn't like Hillary Clinton or for whatever reason. But it's not because they're like, you know what I've been really looking for somebody that really speak out against minorities. And I think I found my guy. That's just that. So when you, when you, when you label a large group of people as either stupid or racist you're not likely to then have those people you know what thank you for calling me dumb and a bigot I'd I'd like to get on board that's just not the way that that and I realize Bill Maher's performing a comedy show and in in part it's hyperbolic but Brooke Baldwin's and just I just look at it go you know what what are you doing uh it's kind of like the same thing when I would watch during President Obama's time uh uh Fox News and it'd be like they'd be like making Barack Obama out to be like this moron. And I'd be like, I mean, the guys, whether you like his policies or not, the man's brilliant. I, I don't know how that, I guess, some, I'm sure some people listening and go, how can you possibly say Barack Obama was brilliant? But I mean, he's, he's a brilliant man. Uh, unless you think like you're able to like skate through some of these Ivy league schools by being an idiot. I, I, but whatever, either way, uh, I, my, my premise is, If you want to have a conversation and truly have influence with people and come to the table with the potential to be influenced by others, to maybe make you re-examine your thoughts and either change your mind or come away even stronger in your beliefs that you entered in the conversation with, you don't do it by being condescending. So when I say that in 1994, I was sitting there going, how can anybody believe in God? I wasn't going, how about all these morons who believe in God? I just had arrived at that place uh, through four years of theology at a Jesuit high school, which I know is not their goal, but I also know part of the Jesuit education system is to challenge, not necessarily challenge with curriculum, although that certainly can be the case, but to challenge the thoughts you have. It's anti-dogma, which I think is healthy. And I'm talking about whether it be religious dogma or any kind of dogma. I'm anti-dogma myself. So there's that element. That's 1994. And I guess, you know, whether it be a combination of of running into some issues with those who fancied themselves on a higher moral ground than me because of their religion, when I was in my brief stint in Little Rock, uh, all while acting as, with their actions as, as just the the shittiest of human beings, but they could always go, well, it's fine because I'm at church on Sunday. Uh, th- in the late 90s and early 2000s, I noticed, and I'm not saying it started then, it's just that's what I noticed because at that point, I'm in my late teens, early 20s, that I noticed the usage of religion in order to get votes. Now, this may have been going on, as Jack Danforth points out, in the early 1980s with Jerry Falwell, but, you know, I mean, I'm four years old in the 1980 presidential election, so it's not like I was really locked in, but I noticed it in the late 1990s and the early 2000s. Um, I think it would probably really surprise people to hear that in the 2000 election, I voted for president George W. Bush. I was, I remember being incredibly torn, but that's who I voted for. Um, and, uh, and, and then I saw what happened in 2004 and it was a combination for me personally in the moment, I was in a hotel room covering Missouri in the NCAA tournament in 2003 in Indianapolis when the U.S. uh, airstrikes in Iraq began. And I remember standing there going, I cannot believe we are doing this. I cannot believe we are doing this. I was so, not because I'm Johnny anti-war, but because I just, based on so many interviews that had gone on, I'm just like, I don't, I just don't think that they're certain that they have weapons of mass destruction, but they're going in and they're going to, American lives are going to be lost. And, and I was just, I was, I I remember just, that was to me a signature moment. And I thought, okay, I cannot vote for George W. Bush, even if I'm a, a huge John Kerry fan or not in 2004. And then I saw that I felt like they knew they were in trouble in the 2004 election. And so then they put gay marriage and gay initiatives on ballots to get people to come out to the polls and vote and vote for Republicans. And that just nauseated me. So those two things are for me personally, where as far as organized religion goes, that's where I look back and I go, that's where I broke away for lack of a better term. But, Now, it's not like I've studied Judaism or Islam or Buddhism or anything else. I can only speak to Catholicism. Um, The teachings, the actual lessons, uh, whether one believes they are true or exaggerated or changed over time with, you know, generations of stories being handed down, whatever the case might be, the love thy neighbor is, for my money, as good as it gets, as far as a teaching goes, you can be atheist, you can be Muslim, you can be anything. And I'd like to think you would agree that that's the best way to live. Now, if you don't, fine. But from my standpoint, I know this in the late 1990s, and it's funny now to even mention his name because at the time he was a comedian and now I don't, I don't really know what he's doing anymore. The Monday night football thing kind of blew him off the map. And then he, I guess he's a conservative talk show host, I guess. Now I don't, I'm not sure. I just don't see him much. Dennis Miller had a show on HBO and it used to be on HBO, like one of the HBO, like two or three or something like that, that it'd be the Larry Sanders show for my money, the greatest TV show ever. It's uh, seven o'clock central time. And then the Dennis Miller show at seven thirty, and it was like repeats of them. And I remember Dennis Miller, and I don't know if he would say this now, 20 plus years removed, but he was talking about religion. And, and I think he was talking about, I'm not sure exactly what it was. It might've been the abortion debate, um, which I think is a separate discussion. Although certainly if one is more religious, he or she is more apt to be pro-life, but I don't think that, that there's a, there's a, there's a 100% cause and effect there. But, uh, you know, his whole premise was, you know what? If you don't like this group of people or whatever it might be, then so be it. And you obviously believe in God, then just let it be determined by God at the end of the day on judgment day. And you go on about living your life. And so, for my money, my two tenets are treat thy neighbor, you know, love thy neighbor, treat somebody how you'd want to be treated to bring it in 2018, and uh, to each their own. It's like, okay, you know, I might not really be on board with you know, take your pick of whatever behavior, but if it's going on next door and it doesn't impact me, I mean, I just don't care. I just don't care. I'm like even worried. Like I just don't care. Like who cares? And when I see people using those kinds of things to win elections and oftentimes I feel like put people in office who are beyond unqualified and then put the rest of us at risk Uh, and I'm, by the way, I know some people might think I'm going total shade on 2016. I've, I've felt this way for a long time in a major way, like going back to like, like Todd Akin, I'll just name a name just going, wow, wow. This man, this man almost, you know, won. uh, that that's, that's scary to me. That's scary to me. And so it's, it's more a question on religion for me personally as to, whether it's true or false right or wrong whatever the case might be um you know i mean around here i would imagine the vast majority of people would fall under the umbrella of being christian in whatever denomination um but then you can go across uh you know the pacific ocean and you're not going to find relative to the percentage here the the same amount of Christians. So you have a whole other part of the world that doesn't share the belief. So who's to say who is right. But I also recognize that there are a lot of people who are of whatever religion, uh, that, that completely feel a different way and then think you're wrong for being a Christian. And that's why I just, I, here's what I know. I know. I don't know. That's what I know. I know. I don't know, but I know that life is better for everybody. If you're just like, okay, this, this person's cool, this person's not cool, but this person's not cool because this person's a dick or this person fucked me over, you know, or treated this person who I know is a good person shitty uh, versus, oh, well, this guy, you know, he's this religion, so fuck him. I mean, that's just, I'm not on board with that. Uh, Or this person is not religious, so, you know, therefore he's not as good as us. You know, that's like, it's like modern day Philistines to use a biblical reference, and that's just not where I am. So that's, that's, to answer the question, my full circle on how I came to think the way that I think, but it doesn't come from a place of certainty. And if somehow religion would find its way back into my life, and it would have to be religion finding its way back into my life because I would not be actively pursuing it because for me it's not something that I believe in, Uh, so therefore I would not seek it out. I would read about religion. I would be interested in reading about religion. I've certainly read about one religion. I'd be interested in reading other religions, but for me personally, it's not where I am. But if it is where somebody else is, then great. Some of the most wonderful people I know, ranging from my parents, my, uh, in-laws, uh, some of the greatest people I've covered as athletes, like a Kurt Warner, they're incredibly religious and all different kinds of religions, by the way, all different denominations of Christianity. Um, and then you see some people, uh, who are Jewish speaking about, uh, the way to go about treating people and live one's life, you know, uh, it's, it, it, so it's not just a Christian thing, or Jewish thing, or Muslim thing or Buddhist thing, people who are very spiritual. It's just cool people. And, and 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 when I say cool people, I'm not talking about somebody who's like, man, that dude's super cool. I'm talking about people who are just like good people. You want to hang around and, and you know, whatever blows their hair back in the privacy of their own home. Cool with me. It just doesn't affect me. So that's, that's where I am. And I have found over the last 21 years that for the most part, it's a very, uh, much more enjoyable and easier way to live. Um, and, you know, when I, when I see religion used to either divide people or to get people to a voting booth, it makes me ill. And on the other side of it, if anyone would try to take away from someone's right the right to practice their faith, I would be completely against that. See, this isn't convenient reasoning. I am for, for freedom of religion, even if I am not religious. And I think that's the way you got to operate for me. That's how I have to operate. I can't go, well, I don't like religion. I'm not, a, I'm a not a religious person. So therefore I'm, I, I don't want people to be able to practice religion. That would be complete bullshit. That's not where I am. So hopefully that explains it. Uh, hopefully it answers the questions. I welcome your emails. Even if you completely disagree with me and seeing as we are in St. Louis, Missouri, I'm sure the vast majority of you will disagree with me. Not because this is some, Hilljack community, but because I recognize that the majority of people in, in the St. Louis area are at the very least Christian. Many are Catholic. I grew up Catholic, went to St. Gabriel's, went to St. Louis, St. Louis U. High. My family's Catholic. My wife's family's Lutheran, to each their own. Super cool, but that's my perspective. When I ask about it, it gave me 25 minutes to expound on something that, that I occasionally get asked about, and for the most part, I think people just kind of go, okay, totally disagree with you, but I respect the way that you lay it out. And I hope that's where you are. Because it's not like I'm like, if you're like, I'm a passionate Christian, I wouldn't go, well, I just totally disagree with you. I just don't share the same, the same, sh- the same mindset. But a lot of the teachings I certainly ascribe to. The thing that I have a tough time with right now is a lot of people who make sure to let you know that they're Christians, like do the absolute opposite as far as the way they live their lives as to what the new Testament talks about. So that kind of fucks me up. It's like, well, I'm a Christian, but fuck them because they like to have sex with men. You know, it's like, well, th- th- that's not the deal. Like one of the whole themes of the new Testament is Mary Magdalene, you know, but it's just like, it's like convenient, it's like convenient, uh, to whatever we don't want to like at this particular moment in time. I can't wait to see how the Bible will be used in 20 years. Who are we going to be on then? But it, you know, it, from my standpoint, if you do live by the teachings, then you're probably going to be pretty cool about everything. But you know, it's just, it's unfortunate in the sense that I feel like it's used to manipulate people and get votes in some corners, not across the board. And that has really turned me off. I was not religious going back to 1994, but I didn't have the aversion to, uh, what I hear and see in 2018 back in 1994. I didn't feel that way. I just see it. And, um, and I'm just, I'm, I'm in i'm I'm in awe of it, and that's why I really have the great respect that I have for Jack Danforth, and that he kind of holds up a mirror and goes okay, if we're gonna if we're gonna talk about being religious well here's here's here are the actual teachings, and we're not we're not really executing the teachings real well if we're going to behave this way and we're not really helping our country if we're going to say we're the party of God. I get it. It helps you win elections. It's great strategy. it's great strategy, but I just disagree with it. just just like. So you you got to do equal time, just like if you're on the left and then you want to say, well, we want to take back the white house or we want to take back control of Congress from these fucking racists and idiots. Well, you're not going to, you're not going to, you're not going to accomplish anything there. It's just not the way that you get people, you know, hear a different perspective. I find different perspectives to be absolutely fascinating, you know? But if somebody's just like plagiarizing talking points from whichever cable news network they watch at night, I'm out, man. I'm just absolutely out. So you give me a philosophical discussion, we can go back and forth. I would do that all day long. Cocktail or no cocktail, I find that to be just the best, a deep conversation. But a conversation has a a give and take, and you're listening, and you're not yelling. That's what I find to be enjoyable. So, uh, And if you do email me, I assure you I will read it. Team McKernan at InsideSTL.com. A lot of times people write very long emails, which is great because I really do enjoy reading them. I just, I feel badly because I cannot write in in detail, the same detail you contacted me with. So just know. Uh, And and certainly even if you're like the most religious person in the world and you hate what I just said, I I still think we can have a conversation about it as long as we're both being uh, polite in our mindsets. So there it is. Uh, Gangster Pete wanted the religion question first. We gave Gangster Pete the religion question uh, first. Hey, uh, thank you to Mark Hanna of Evergreen Wealth Strategies for sponsoring the Tim McKernan Show. Uh, I, I'll i tell you, the, the more I kind of dig into my own financial situation, uh, much more so than I really ever have, the more I go, oh, what I wouldn't do to go back to my 20s, not because I would hit a golf ball further or I would you know, lift more or something like that. Uh, it's because I'd go, God, I would just make sure I'm setting money aside. And it's just such a miss. It's such a miss. And that's why uh, when it comes to talking about Mark Hanna, I'm so passionate. I mean, I screwed up. I screwed up my money management, my 20s, 30s. And I, when I say this, I don't want to make it sound like, like I'm like, you know, uh, you know, like in a, in a mess. It's just, it could have been better. I mean, that's, that's, that's the thing. And you just go, what were you doing? And I don't know. I don't have a good answer. I do know this. I didn't have anybody advising me. And that's what Mark Hanna does. His number is 314-889-0503. 314-889-0503. You can check him out at evergreenstl.com. Mark Hanna of Evergreen Wealth Strategies. Here's the thing. Just having somebody get your stuff together, you've probably put yourself in an incredibly better position, but also put your mind at ease. And that's so helpful. He enters in the numbers for you. And then you say, well, this is what I want to do. This is when I want to retire. This is how much I want to set aside. Now I'm doing it. And now I'm like, my God, I could have been doing this. God, I don't know. Going back almost 20 years, actually, uh, when I started working at KMOV, I was working at Little Rock. It wasn't like there was a lot of extra cash. But uh, when I started working at KMOV and then I was doing radio, too, and I wasn't saving money. I'm like, no, I've got another grand. I guess I can put that into Poker Stars and piss that away over the next two hours. I mean, what in the hell? And then I know plenty of people now, you know, it's not like we were talking about it then. You're like, yeah, I paid off my condo when I was, you know, in my 20s. And I'm going, God, I could have done that. I could have done that without much of a sweat. Oh, it's brutal. It's bad. It, so do something about it. This is, this is, if you're feeling like, you know what, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not even paying attention to it. I'm telling you, this is a good guy, a smart guy, and he can help you get on the right track. 314-889-0503 or check him out online at evergreenstl.com. His name is Mark Hanna. All right, next question from questions from the audience. Tim, is it a yes or no? Is Barry Odom going to be the head coach of Missouri in 2019? Because if it's a yes, I don't think I have any interest in watching. I like this question. I like that I'm going to be able to discuss it. On uh, the podcast, and that comes from James S. Uh, because I think it, I think it warrants like a wider discussion than you can usually have on radio. And I mean, I certainly could have it on radio, but I know that like Doug and the cat would start falling asleep if I got into it. So, so here you've chosen to listen. You've listened through the religion thing, so you're obviously pot committed. You might as well stick around for this. There's, I don't want to say there's, there, there, there's one side and then there's another side because I don't think there is. Here's one thing. I think it is a bad thing in general in sports to give coaches two or three years to get it right. Now, without question, there are plenty of examples of coaches who are on the precipice of success in one case or just had fumble fucked around for a couple of years, and then the organization comes out better after they make a change. Uh, regarding being on the precipice of success and then making a change, uh, I can think of, and I don't know why I'm thinking of it, but I'm thinking of Tony Dungy with the Buccaneers, and then they bring in Gruden, and then they win the Super Bowl. They were close; hell, they almost upset the Rams in in the uh, 1999 season, January 23rd, 2000, uh, the Buccaneers and the Rams game. So you have you have an example there, and then I'm sure. I mean, right now, uh, you've had a bunch of teams th- the last year that were in the playoffs in baseball that then fired their managers, like three, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and I might be missing out on more, um, some of whom are, uh, still alive in the case of, uh, the Swalks and, you know, I know the nationals with Dusty Baker and the Yankees with Joe Girardi. So, so I understand it, but I don't really know. Well, I I don't, it's not that I don't know. I don't think that it gives a coach or a manager, uh, a chance to really implement his system, and in particular with college sports, when so much of it is based on recruiting. So with regard to that in in Missouri's situation, and we're talking here, you know, as if Barry Odom is going to have a bad year. Now, the definition of a bad year varies from person to person, which I think is another side of this discussion. I think that Missouri fans, some Missouri fans, not all, some Missouri fans do Missouri a disservice by saying, well, we are who we are. You know, we're, we're a mediocre school or mediocre program. We're just going to be uh, who we are. And it's, you know, you know, you don't, in Missouri you don't fire a bowl coach. And I got to tell you, of all of the things, of all kind of like the counters to wanting to part ways with Barry Odom, that one, that one, that one, that one puts me on tilt. You know, it'd be one thing if we're talking 1984 and, you know, how many schools went to bowl games then for real? I don't know. I'll, I'll be liberal with it and say 30. So 15 bowl games. Um, I think that might be high in 1984, but maybe somebody will provide me with the email and go say, fuck you. There were 50 going then. I don't know, but it certainly wasn't what's going on now where more than half go to bowl games. Uh, and, and you, and you set up your schedule with at least two buttasses, maybe three that, you know, you're going to get three wins. Um, but let's be conservative again, just so I don't present straw men. So, you know, you got two wins. And so then you can go under 500 in your league and then it's a good season. I mean, is, is that where, if, if that's the bar, then we're just going to have to similar to the religion discussion, agree to disagree. I just disagree. Missouri football since 2007 has been in the top 10 in 2007, 2008, 2010, 2013. And I don't know if they got there in 2014, but they, uh, won the sec East in 2014. And from my standpoint, that now from my definition, that's not the markings over the last 11 years of, like this average, well, we are who we are team and program. They were a win away in 2007 and a win away in 2013 from playing for the national championship. I can't imagine. God, I can't imagine. I'll give myself some room. I can't imagine that over the last year, uh, 11, 11 seasons, 12 seasons now, that you can say that there are uh, 20 programs who can, who can say they were a win away from playing for the national championship. So, therefore, that would put Missouri well at the top end. Now, I'm not saying that this is Alabama, or ever can be what you're seeing with Alabama. I don't know how many people can be Alabama. But, you know, part of being successful is setting the bar high. And if the bar is you don't fire a coach who goes to a bowl game around here, wow, I'm not interested in that. And I just think that's setting the bar too low. It'd be one thing if 2007, 2008, 2010, 2013, 2014 didn't happen, and you're still kind of around 2006 in the Sun Bowl, you know, or the the, the trips to Shreveport. That's a different thing. But those seasons did happen, and there were five of them. And you can't take that away. And there were big wins in each and every one of those. So I mean, you were on the you were on college football's grandest stage not including what goes on in, in January in, in 2013 and 14, the sec championship game, you were in the big 12 championship game in 2000, 2007, 2008. And you beat the number one team in the country in 2010. So I realize saying this right now, and I'm saying this after the horrible loss to South Carolina, that it's like, it's like, it's like when people argue on Twitter after the, you know, where are all the Cardinal haters now? Or where are all the, you know, Cardinal supporters. Now it's like the timing gives context. Now with that said, though, it can be done. These are facts. I'm not saying I'm not making something up. So I'm torn on this last year. I did. I, it was heading towards Barry Odom getting fired. I don't know how it was. It. And then they happened to have this stretch of schedule that was so favorable, but it was like this weird thing because it was so obvious. It was so favorable But some people were just like, oh, it's clearly that they've turned it around. And I'm like, God, you could be, take, take your pick of whatever school that's kind of middling around and you would have lined up those opponents and they would have won as well. So what I, what I worried for Barry Odom's sake in 2018 happening is almost exactly what's happened. What would have been the only way they could have made it worse in the realm of reality is if they would have lost to Purdue, which they were an overturned call away from having happened, by the way. Uh because they weren't going to lose to UT Martin. They weren't going to lose to Wyoming. At least I didn't think so. I didn't put that in the realm of outcomes, but losing to Purdue, losing to South Carolina, and of course losing to Georgia and Alabama uh, in the first half of the season were all possibilities. And so minus the Purdue game, uh, you know, barring a miracle in Tuscaloosa and why wouldn't that be something, uh, you know, it's, it's come to fruition. And so you have a bar that was set higher than I think it deserved to be. For Barry Odom, following 2017, because of the way that the schedule shook out, which wasn't Barry Odom's fault, most of those opponents were SEC schools. They just were SEC schools who were in like the lowest of their lows. Uh, you know, with what Florida, uh, Arkansas, Tennessee, and, and Vanderbilt. So, in addition to UConn, was it UConn and Idaho? Did they play Idaho. Is UConn? I don't know. Either way, it was it was just a line of. You know, just like, yeah, they, wow, they're going to win. They're going to win. But, I mean, even if he would have put them against a middle-of-the-pack SEC team at that time last year, they would have lost. it, And it was kind of obvious. So what happened with the Texas game, it's like, yeah, they weren't good. Now, here's the other side. I'm going to present a bunch of angles. Understandably, especially if you're a casual fan, these names, they come and go. And, and very rarely... Do you have a situation like Drew Locke where you go, oh, four seasons of Drew Locke, you know his name, Drew Locke, even if you're not a Missouri fan, if you're a sports fan in the state of Missouri, you know who Drew Locke is. But you probably, if you're a casual fan, uh, aren't going to be able to go, oh, yeah, and the Emmanuel Hall injury is a huge deal. But the Emmanuel Hall injury is a huge deal it has taken away an element of the Missouri offense. That was one of the reasons why they were a feared offense. And that's the ability to stretch the field and his ability to get beyond the secondary. And that's now not there. And it hasn't been there since when he got hurt against Purdue. So they didn't have it against Georgia and stunningly with how poorly they played with the self-inflicted wounds against Georgia. They were in that game. Who knows what would have happened if they had Emmanuel hall, which is not something I had anticipated. Um, they certainly could have and should have beaten South Carolina without Emmanuel Hall, but when you see Drew Locke struggling like he is, he doesn't have his biggest weapon, and this is just—it's just a real thing. But when you have national pundits and local pundits talking about college football teams, because it's not like you can rattle off the starting lineup for the Cardinals, uh, you know, or the Blues four lines, the, the faces change, the names change so quickly, while the fans, you know, are around for generations, that. You kind because you're not hearing names as household names. Like if like let me put it this way: if Drew Lock would have gotten hurt in Purdue and he hadn't played against, or he would have been totally like on one leg against Georgia and didn't play against South Carolina and wasn't playing against Alabama, what would the conversation be? Well, Missouri's losing, but they didn't have Drew Lock, so it's tough to really gauge where Barry Odom is. And I'm telling you, I think Emmanuel Hall is just as important to the Missouri offense as Drew Lock. But I also know a lot of people have no idea who Emmanuel Hall is, and so. That's a reality. So, if, and we also, oh, another reality is in the same way you go, God, they could have lost the Purdue game. You can go, God, they could have won the South Carolina game. And you also, as weird as it is to say, they were in the Georgia game. And I don't know what the hell that was about. I kind of feel like Georgia had a bad game. Um, but you give Missouri Emmanuel Hall. And I'm not sure what happens in that thing if those teams play again, which is surprising to me. So I don't know if that means Missouri's better than we're giving them credit for at this moment, or if it means that Georgia's not as good as people assume because they were in the national championship game. I don't know. Um, so if that is the case, then really how far off is the program? Now at this point, this is where I am. Unless you're going to one of those glamorous bowls that's either, you know, late, late, late December or, you know, early, early, early January, I don't get off on the bowl thing. I just, it's not where I am now, but that I also recognize some people do. But when so many schools go to bowls, this narrative that it's a good year. If you go to a bowl to me is bullshit and I get tired of it. And it was a Gary Pinkle thing, you know, but I get, I listen, I get why a college coach would say it because then you can set that as the bar for success and go, well, we go to bowls. but it also means you went 500, you know, or it can be as low as going 500. And I just think the program has been better than that. And can be better than that. And I think for the Missouri fans who are frustrated by the attendance, I think in order for the program to have better attendance and for have home games to be an atmosphere that, that rivals other SEC schools, you have to get to a point where you are there. And, and just going to a bowl is not what's going to get people all excited. So you have that element. They also had a stretch of schedule here, which is incredibly difficult relative to what the average schedule is going to be that you're playing two teams who right now, are the top two teams in the country in, in Alabama and Georgia, and you're playing them a matter of four weeks. So all these factors contribute to it. The issue is this in Barry Odom's tenure. What's the best win? Is it the comeback against Arkansas? Is it Purdue I don't know. And so for those who like compare the first three years of Gary Pinkle to the first three years of, of Barry Odom, you know, it's tough to go back to 2001, two and three. But I do know that in 2003, which was midway through Gary Pinkle's third year, they beat Nebraska. And so you could feel like, okay, yeah, it's not like they're, they're winning nine games, 10 games, but you're like, okay, I can see the progress. I don't see the progress with Missouri at this point. And I'm not citing the Georgia game per se, even though that was a self-inflicted wound festival. I'm more citing the South Carolina game and the win against Purdue. Cause, cause I look at the process and the process right now is really shitty. And it's, it's concerning You know, I mean, self-inflicted errors, wide receivers or tight ends running free down the middle of the field, coaching communication errors on onside kicks, it's really just disconcerting. And in that capacity, that's what concerns me most. I don't see the progress. The good thing is, as far as a litmus test for where things are, is you're going to get some legitimately tough opponents in the second half of the season. You're not going to get Georgia and Alabama, but you're also not going to get that deal that they got last year. Uh, Now you are going to get Arkansas and Vanderbilt and Tennessee, but you are going to get Kentucky and Florida. And to me, that's a good barometer. Now, I know Florida's coming off a win against LSU as we sit here and talk, which was a surprise. But Florida was not a team that was expected to be great this year. And they did get hammered by Kentucky. Kentucky certainly wasn't expected to do what they're doing. And if you're a Kentucky fan, and I can't imagine you are if you're listening to this, but if you are, I was looking at Kentucky's schedule. I was watching them play Texas A&M on Saturday night just to go, okay, when are they going to have their tests? And they had one game left. It was kind of like the Kansas thing in 2007. Kansas's success in 2007 was in part, and I think Kansas fans would admit this, but who knows, that they just had a really favorable schedule in 2007. They were a very good team. I always kind of felt like they were disregarded as a very good team because they were Kansas, similar to Missouri. Uh, but, but they were a very good team. But they also had the right cycle of schedule in the Big 12 that year. Kentucky had Georgia at home left. And then you look at the rest of it, and it's like, Oh, my God, everything else they'll be favored by and favored comfortably. Their second toughest game might have been Missouri left. Uh, so they were actually set up. And if they could somehow beat Georgia, and they would have won at Texas A&M, and I guess they still could be in the SEC championship game considering Georgia's schedule. Um, so that, that that situation is going to be a good barometer for Missouri. So it won't be what you had last year. And if you get beat up, or have another self-inflicted wound festival against Kentucky and Florida, that to me is a much greater gauge than if you beat Memphis and if you beat Tennessee and if you beat Vanderbilt and if you beat Arkansas and you finish the year with seven wins because UT Martin in Wyoming, you know, in all due respect to, you know, the force that is the Boilermaker, uh, you know, it's not like you're putting together uh, wins over great opposition, which is kind of where things are. So, like I said, okay, you want to line up Gary Pinkle's first year, three years against uh, Barry Odoms? Okay. Sounds good. He beat Nebraska in 2003, a signature moment that ended years of famine against the, the Cornhuskers that really got people fired up on a Saturday night game that was on national television and in front of a packed place. Uh and and that hasn't happened yet. And I, and I look at the schedule and I don't know where it's going to happen as far as in Columbia goes. I guess if Kentucky were, you know, somehow back in the top 15 at that point, which is possible, and you beat Kentucky, I guess the thing is it's Kentucky and it's not like it's Georgia or Florida that's back in the top 15 because it's Kentucky. But still, that would show progress to me. That Even though I know the casual fan won't be like, ooh, Missouri beat Kentucky, that would show progress. Kentucky really should be undefeated. Uh, They left one out there on Saturday night in College Station. So I really would prefer, as a Missouri fan, that Barry Odom turn it around in a big way because I don't want to see you go through coaches every three years. I also think it might make it tougher to bring coaches if they feel like they have three years only. Um, And I also think Barry Odom inherited a situation that, in part, was... a uh, a monster uphill climb, but also because the situation was so bad is probably the reason why he got the job. So it kind of cut both ways. But from my standpoint, you know, just beating, um, you know, UT Martin, Wyoming, Purdue, Memphis, Tennessee, Vanderbilt, and Arkansas does not a successful season make. Uh, It'll get you in a bowl, but that isn't where this thing needs to be. Uh, so I'm anxious to see how they perform. I mean, certainly I'm looking forward to watching them play Alabama just as it's like you're watching your team play what might be the greatest college football team ever. Uh, but I'm really looking forward to the Kentucky game and the, and the Florida game as well to see how they perform in those two. So hopefully they win a couple of these and, uh, and that discussion's off the table and recruits are like, okay, I know he's going to be there and this thing's moving in the right direction. The issue is so much talent is leaving after this year and, uh, it's just going to be tough for them to, to get it going in 2019, but who knows, maybe some of these underclassmen who have, who have flashed at times in, in 2018, will will get more playing time. And the thing will actually uh, be in, in a good spot in 2019, but people thought this was going to be the year it's the third year of the program. And when you have performances like you've had, Including Purdue. I know it was a win. It's self inflicted errors against Georgia and then also uh, the South Carolina game. That doesn't inspire much confidence for the long term. All right, there it is. Questions from the audience presented by Ryan Kelly, our student sponsor, uh, Mark Hanna of Evergreen Wealth Strategies, James Carlton of the James Carlton State Farm Insurance Agency. He is online at carltoninsurance.net. His number is 314 961 4800 and he will save you money. That's what it's all about, brother. He will save you money. Uh, I've gotten to know James and I'm telling you, you know, at first it's like, okay, I, I, I'm thrilled that you want to advertise on the show. And then I've gotten to work with him and I'm like, wow. As yeah, a matter of fact, I was meeting with somebody and they go, well, you know, you probably could just do the generic insurance and save money. I said, I got to tell you something. This guy's great. I, I'm, I'm not, I, I don't even, I don't care what it's going to save me. It does not matter. It's worth it. And here's the thing, he's going to save you money anyway. So it, it's, it's, it's something to, I just think, I think the thing like, oh, insurance, you know, people are always, I'm like, no, you do need it. You do need it, whether it be life insurance, home insurance, auto insurance, whatever the case might be. In my case for Inside STL, for your business, you know, you need insurance. And when you have somebody who responds and who is intelligent about it and you know that you're going to get answers and, you know, think through it with you. It makes a difference. They do the paperwork for you. I can't recommend them enough. 314-961-4800 uh, or online at carltoninsurance.net. James Carlton, uh, Johnny Landoff Chevrolet at I-270 in the Washington Elizabeth exit or online at landoff.com. And the great Tom Schmidt of Salt and Smoke. Now, people know about Tom Schmidt's locations on Del Mar and the Loop, and they know about the location on the south side on Hampton. But here's the thing you might not know is that they can cater your party and for my money that's what we used for my son's first birthday party and people were in heaven with the I always like that I never want to let's let's scrimp on the food you know so that way we can save I want people to come and have a feast and eat whatever the hell they want and and uh, when people are like oh my god where is this from salt and smoke go online at saltandsmokestl.com let them cater your party you'll be happy you did thank you to all of our sponsors for making it possible thank you the audience For the questions, email any questions you want, feedback you want, Tim McKernan at InsideSTL.com. This has been another edition of the Tim McKernan Show on the InsideSTL Podcast Network from the HomeLoneExpert.com studios. We conquer cancer. For the mom-to-be who is out of treatment options. For the doctor who has a brilliant idea but needs research funding. For the people who faced cancer head-on and climbed incredible heights while they were with us. For the children who celebrate the end of chemo. We conquer cancer for all who have been touched by it. Conquer Cancer accelerates breakthroughs in research and care for every cancer, every patient, everywhere. Join us at conquer.org.